Welcome to the Oxford Sidebar Podcast for March 2016 from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. Our speaker this month was Professor Susan Jebb, who spoke to us on the facts and fiction surrounding nutrition. We hope you enjoy. Well, thank you all for coming, and welcome to tonight's Sidebar. And we're the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. And basically, we run Sidebars here once a month at the pub. And this is our goal, to just get as many people as possible into the pub so that you can hear about exciting, interesting science from a world-leading expert and hopefully generate really interesting discussion, which I'm sure this talk in particular will. And it's an honor to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor Susan Jebb, who um, is a professor of diet and population health with a specialty in diet and its impact on obesity. And I should point out that Susan, amongst her many accolades, also has an OBE, which she received in 2008 for her services to public health. And also last year was the uh, winner of the Maddox Prize, which is an award given once a year to a scientist who <coughs> uses evidence-based science and is a proponent of it, but also often in the face of adversity, um, which obviously these kind of controversial topics can bring. So um, Susan's going to talk to us tonight about nutrition and what's fact and what's fiction. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Thank you. This is uh, great. I have to say, this is the first time I've been to one of these events. We do lots and lots of public talks, but um, I have to say, I uh, think this is rather in my satisfaction. The only trouble is I feel seriously overdressed, but I have been, in my defence, I've been in London all day um, and doing, doing other things. Um, and uh, it's proved to be an incredibly timely and topical day to speak. So I had a quiet word with George as well. And uh, he introduced a, uh, uh, not quite a sugar tax, a soft drink industry levy today in the budget. Um, so I've been doing a bit of media stuff around that, and maybe we'll come on to that later. So it's, it's a really, really topical uh, moment. So, uh, oh gosh, where to start? I think what I'm going to do is talk pretty briefly, because nutrition is one of those topics which everybody has got an interest in, personal or professional, and uh, I'm sure you have got lots of questions, and I'm really happy to try and answer those, and we can sort of take the discussion from there. So I think I'll, I'll try and talk quite briefly. Um, I guess I want to do two things. I want to talk a little bit about the nature of evidence in relation to diet and health. And I think that's important because nutrition has become, I would argue, one of the most contested areas of science. And I think it's interesting to think why that, why that is. In part, it's because everybody's interested in it and everybody's got a view and that is fantastic. But I think it does mean that sometimes evidence gets quite mixed up with opinion and um, a heavy dose of emotion. Um, so we all get very attached to the way we do things and the way we eat and that that's somehow the right way. So I guess I want to try to talk a little bit about the scientific evidence in relation to diet and health. And then, most importantly, because I think this is where we all have got to have a opinion and a stake. It's about how do we begin to shape the nation's diet, if indeed it's a reasonable thing to do. Should we, as a society, try to influence what people eat? <coughs> you might have a view on that. Could say, it's 
completely personal choice. People should be left to their own devices to do exactly as they please. Or on the other hand, you could say, for goodness sake, diet is the biggest cause of, uh, the biggest modifiable cause of ill health in this country. It is costing the NHS a fortune. As taxpayers, we all have a stake in that. Sure as anything, we are going to have a say in what people in what people eat. And everybody in this room will lie somewhere on that spectrum of individual responsibility, leave it to people, <coughs> do as they wish, through to bring back rationing, tell people what to what to eat. And there's a raft of policies that fall in between that. So I guess I want to give you a little bit of um, perspective on the kinds of things one might do and be really interested to here where your views lie um, on what we should do. So that's the kind of game plan. Um, as you heard, mostly I'm interested in obesity. Most of my research, and I'm here in the Department of Primary Care, is mostly around obesity. Um, but I'm a pretty general public health nutritionist. I trained as a dietitian originally. Um, decided I couldn't face telling people what to eat for the rest of my life. So um, I went into research and um, have really stayed there ever since. But that early training as a dietitian, I think, has made me very keen to see science applied in practice. You know, that people understand why we say eat five a day or eat less salt. You know, we don't just pull these things out of the <coughs> We don't do it to make your life difficult. We don't do it to stop you eating foods you really like. We do it because there's evidence it will improve health, and I think that's... That's kind of important to, to talk about. So, two aspects, diet and health, what should we do about it? The first one then is how do we know what, what is the effect of diet on, on health outcomes? And there are two main kinds of evidence and a third supporting one. The, the, the one that's mostly used comes from observational studies. Now, most of you, I suspect, have more or less scientific background or, or certainly interest. So with observational studies, what we do in nutrition is we find out what people eat and then we follow them over a period of time or track their medical records and we see what happens to their health later on. And we say, ha-ha, eating this increases your risk of that. Now, those are great studies because you can study hundreds and thousands of people. So here in Oxford, we've got some of the biggest of these cohorts in the UK. There's UK Biobank, more than half a million people. There's the Million, million Women Study. It's got more than a million, 1.1 million women. Um, we've got EPIC. We've got a raft of big, big cohort studies. And there are obviously lots internationally as well. And, but the challenge is that they rely on people telling us what they eat at the start. Now, if a nutritionist comes along and says, what did you eat yesterday? There is, I might suggest, a tendency to forget the Mars bar and to remember that you had half a banana with your cereal. So people's memory um, is often not wholly reliable. And beyond that, even with the best will in the world, actually it's hard to know exactly how much you ate. And it's also not clear that yesterday was representative in any way of what you usually do. So there are masses and masses of problems. And you can overcome some of those by asking loads and loads of people, 
that overcomes the day-to-day -day variability, but it does not overcome misreporting. What we know is that typically people underestimate their energy intake, their calorie intake, by about a third. So, a third of the calories, we have no idea what they're coming from. And what we do is we kind of infer and impute what those are based on everything else. So we imagine the third that are missing are the same as the two thirds that are there. And I put it to you that that may not be true. So there's a bit of a, bit of a hiccup with that. But nonetheless, they give us this big data. And what they generally show these big cohort studies is that people who eat more fruit and veg, more fiber, less sugar, less saturated fat, less meat actually, um, less salt, have longer, healthier lives. They have less cancer, less heart disease, less diabetes, less obesity, less everything else, less blah, 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 blah. It's just better to do all of those things. And that is the basis really of most of the dietary recommendations. They do it more quantitatively than that, but that's the gist of it, looking at the diets of what people eat and their health outcomes. The problem is, it's heavily confounded. Now, what I mean by that is that certain kinds of people who eat very healthy diets do lots of other things as well. They're more physically active, they're less likely to smoke. Dare I say it, they might not drink quite so much. So there's a whole raft of other factors. And although statistically we can adjust for some of those, you can only adjust for things you have measured and that you think are going to be important. And there's a whole raft of other things we haven't even thought of and which we haven't measured, which lead to this residual, uh, what we call residual confounding. They lead to just uncertainty. Now, I don't think that means we're wrong in these general conclusions, but what I'm suggesting to you is that they perhaps overinflate the effect because what we attribute to be eating less saturated fat is a combination of a whole raft of other things that we haven't, haven't measured as far. It's just that less saturated fat turns out to be a marker of a generally healthier diet. So observational studies give us the bulk of the evidence, and they're generally quite clear. But, what, but, the, but better evidence would come from trials. And I have to say, here's a bias, I'm a trialist, that's what I do. I intervene, we change people's diet, and we look at the, we look at the impact. So we take our ideas from the observational studies, and we say, okay, so, you epidemiologists tell us that eating less saturated fat is good for us. So, we'll do a trial now where we take a big group of people and we randomly allocate them. So, we try to get over this problem of confounding by randomly allocating all the confounders. So, you don't know which group you're in. And then we get people to change their diet. One group reduce their saturated fat, or whatever it is. The other group don't. And we look what happens to their health. It's a brilliant way of doing science. It's great. Or at least it is in theory great. <coughs> the problem is that in nutrition, it is really hard for me to get people to do what I ask them to do. And the consequence is that although this group here, who I want to lower their saturated fat, try very hard, they never do quite as well as I'd like them to do. 
And this other group, which I call my control group, who I want just to carry on as they were, have been recruited into a trial. They've given informed consent. They've heard that this study is all about understanding the effects of saturated fat. And at least some of them think, oh gosh, well maybe I should cut down my saturated fat. And they go to do it. So you never end up with as clean cut a difference as you thought you would get. And secondly, it's really hard for people to keep that up for a long period of time. So in nutrition studies, if we get people to roughly stick to what we've asked them to do for six months, 12 months, we think we're doing pretty well. But of course, we're up against the observational studies, which have got 20, 30 years follow-up. And we can't random, easily randomise people to two different diets and then see over a lifetime what happens. And that's a real sticking point, because what people will say to me is, ha-ha, there are no trials that show reducing <coughs> saturated fat reduces deaths from heart disease. They're right. There are no trials that do that. That's because we haven't followed anybody up that long, and nobody stuck to their diet that long, so we haven't got a trial anymore. What we do know, very, very consistently, is that in these year-long or two-year or relatively short-term trials, reducing saturated fat convincingly and consistently lowers your LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol. In completely different studies, nothing to do with nutrition, we know that lowering LDL reduces deaths from heart disease. That's why we give people statins. Lower their LDL, reduces the risk of heart disease. Now, I am prepared to put those two together and say, reducing saturated fat reduces LDL, and I believe that that will reduce heart disease. I put that together with the observational studies, which suggest that people who eat less saturated fat are less likely to have heart disease, and to me that starts building up into a convincing story. It's then supported by mechanistic evidence which looks at how, when you eat in, in animal studies or in cellular studies or laboratory detailed experimental studies, how does saturated fat impact on cholesterol metabolism? And you start building up that convincing story. But it will not stop people perfectly correctly saying there isn't a single trial that reducing saturated fat reduces heart disease. There isn't. So the trouble, I think, with nutrition is studies are rarely, really black and white. They're always open to a degree of interpretation, and that, I think, confounds the issues. So I've given you a tale of saturated fat. I could do the same with sugar, actually. Good evidence that, in the case of sugar, it's all about weight. But people who eat less sugar, less likely to be overweight. Observational data shows that very nicely, particularly the sugary drinks, but sugar in general. There are trials that show, over a year or two years, if you reduce sugar, for example, replacing it with artificial sweeteners or just eating less, people lose weight. Really, really clear. And the people who are eating a lot of saturated fat may well be the same people that are not eating too much, too much sugar. They're not necessarily two separate groups. This isn't either or. It's both of them are important. And the other challenge comes that we do these trials based on nutrients, 
saturated fat and sugar because metabolically that is what's important that's that's the what's happening at a cellular level the tissues and the cells are using individual nutrients but truth be told when you and i go to the supermarket come and have supper here we don't say oh well i will have you know uh, 100 grams of saturated fat four grams of sugar and a, a side order of uh, fiber we buy foods we don't buy nutrients we buy foods and the reality is that most foods are a mixture of nutrients okay sugary drinks are pure sugar butter and oil are pure fat but beyond that most foods are a mixture of nutrients and so when i get into a room with colleagues who are obsessed that it's all about saturated fat or others who are convinced it's all about sugar they're a little bit apt to oversell their case by doing down the other one so the sugar people say oh no 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 so you don't need to worry about saturated fat oh no, no you don't need to worry about sugar the reality is that the foods we need to worry about are people eating too much biscuits cakes <coughs> chocolate confectionery pastry type items most of which are a mix of fat and sugar and it's that mix which is very potent. Both of them have adverse metabolic effects, but they also have behavioral effects because not many of us crave sugar from the sugar bowl or, you know, butter straight out of the butter dish. Put the two together, whoo, the palatability shoots up. Far more tasty. Remember childhood memories, all of that, you know, butter and sugar creamed in the mixing bowl tastes quite delicious. Icing, I, actually I hate icing on cupcakes, but, but the truth is that mostly that's a fat sugar mixture. People are, and it's the same if you were to put a bit of salt in. You know, the salted nuts are quite delicious. You try, have you tried the honey salted cashew nuts? Amazing mix of fat, sugar, and salt. Hits an absolute reward center in your brain. We are, we are programmed to see delicious food and eat it we have what I often call an ancient metabolism. It's been moulded by famine. It's been moulded by not having enough food. Why, why would we not see delicious, safe, tasty, palatable food and not eat it? doesn't make much evolutionary sense where the, where the peril was not having enough food. We have simply not had time to evolve into a world where food is readily available, plentiful, actually surprisingly cheap. So I would argue that if we start thinking about food and nutrition, not so much at the metabolic nutritional level, but at the level of what people eat, I think we've got a pretty good understanding of what a healthy diet's all about. It's about more fresh fruit and vegetables, it's about less highly processed foods, particularly those high in fat, high in sugar, which don't have many micronutrients. I think that's not that difficult to understand. I think most people, frankly, most people out there in Oxford would have very little difficulty telling me fruit and veg good, cakes bad. It's not fundamentally lack of knowledge which is actually holding us back. Sure, a bit of fine detail around the edge. Gracious, I have to check the labels on some things to find out what's in there. There's a bit of, there's a bit of extra knowledge would help us all. But fundamentally, 
I don't personally believe lack of knowledge is at the bottom of why we've got such a poor diet as a nation. Um, but I do worry that the scientific evidence is used in a way which creates unnecessary confusion amongst people because of the way it's presented and the way the vested interests portray their individual nutrient. And alcohol is particularly rich in calories, there's no other benefits and you really shouldn't drink it. And this is this is half busy water. <laughs> I should say, my defense. So that's my bit about the science. Very happy to come back and, and maybe we'll just take questions at, at the end. But so I think there is a little bit about the nature of evidence in, in nutrition. But if we accept, and this isn't this isn't a, a nutrition evangelist saying this, the global burden of disease study has now shown for the UK that diet is the single most important cause of ill health in this country. It's overtaken smoking. It's not because smoking isn't as bad as it used to be. It's just because not that many people smoke anymore. So for an individual person, the most important thing you can do to improve your health is not to smoke. That's absolutely clear. But for society at large, the most important risk factor is a poor diet. Because with the best one in the world, hardly any of us are managing to meet all the dietary recommendations. It's quite hard to be good about fat and sugar and salt and fruit and veg all at the same time. That takes quite a lot of effort. So, so poor diet is now the leading cause of ill health in this country. It's estimated to account for about 12% of the so-called DALIs, disability adjusted life years. So the, 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 the adverse effect on, on uh, health is about 12% of ill health is down to poor diet. Another 8% is down to being overweight. So together, food, a little bit of physical activity, we're talking about 20% of all ill health attributable to poor diet. So, we roughly know what to do, and it's really making us sick. So I, at least, would make the case that we ought to be thinking about how do we reframe what the nation needs. And I think we, as a society, have to do that, because I think it is expecting too much of individuals to have to make detailed decisions so many times a day to do the right thing you like to invoke what we often call willpower you know actually it's hard to eat healthily in the world we live in and it seems to me it's a bit too hard and it's not surprising that many of us can't keep it up all the time because actually it's quite tough it's quite tough because food's relatively cheap it's incredibly available and it's massively promoted so we're encouraged when we see food we want to go and eat it if you watch tv ads with food in the break you may not go and get that particular food, but it, it does something we call priming. So it prompts you to think about food and to think, oh, well, that would be a good idea. Oh, well, maybe I will have a biscuit or a chocolate with my cup of tea. So the challenge, I think, for government is to say, well, what, what is our role? How far is it reasonable to go? Do you just leave people at the mercy of the market? You know, let what will be, will be? Or do you take control? And in a way, you have to balance the autonomy of an individual with the 
societal impact of their, of their choices. And the Nuffield Council on Bioethics came up with what they called a Nuffield Intervention Ladder, which said, look, there's a whole raft of policies you can do, starting from the, just give people a bit of information, through to banning it. And the higher you go up the ladder, the more you're infringing people's personal freedom. So you have to, A, make sure what you're proposing is going to be effective. So you need better evidence if you want to do something which is a bit draconian. You need to be pretty confident <coughs> it's going to work. But it has to be proportional to the risk. So you can't go to the top of the ladder for something inconsequential. It's got to be, it's got to be something important. Um, and I think that those principles are, are worth kind of, you know, Re reflecting on and, and seem to me quite sensible. So the kinds of things they'd say is at the bottom we should give people information. Beyond that we should maybe help people to make better choices with things like labelling. So you might guide their choice. You can't expect people to make a healthier choice if they've no idea what's in the food. So we could, we could you know, start guiding choices. So you get things like the traffic light labelling which not only tells you how many calories, fat, sugar and salt, it, it um, colour codes it then you could maybe incentivise people to make better choices. So you could just you know, make it a bit easier for them to do that. You could make it the default. So when you uh, go to a coffee shop, for example, the default could be semi-skimmed milk rather than full-fat milk. So it wouldn't, you know, you would have to make a conscious decision. If you wanted full-fat milk, you could have it. But the default would be the healthier option. If you went to a restaurant, the default would be that your meal came with vegetables. You could ask them not to serve it with veg, but the default would be it came with veg. You could shift the default so it favoured the healthier. If you want to go up a bit higher, <coughs> you could start adding disincentives in the system. So we could start taxing. You know, price, price affects consumption. You put up the price of tobacco and alcohol, consumption decreases. Not dramatically, but it for sure goes down. Food is pretty cheap. We spend about 11% of our disposal of our income on food now. After the, you know, 1950s, it was a third of our income was spent on food. Food is actually pretty cheap these days. So if we put up the price of the less healthy products, maybe we discourage people. So if you do something like sugary drinks, just imagine if you had a tax on the sugared version, but not on the low-calorie version. At the point you are making the choice, you could pay 20p more or 20p less. And it would encourage a proportion of people to switch to the lower calorie option. Beyond that, but they could still make a choice. Beyond that, you get up to the really high levels where you might want to restrict choice. So restricting choice might be um, us saying, actually, you can't buy sugary drinks in a hospital. Um, somewhere else, you can bring them in, we're not stopping you doing that, but we're not going to have them do machines in hospitals. Restricting choice might be saying to advertisers, there are certain places or certain foods you can't advertise. It's not you can't ever have them, but you, know, you, can't, you can't advertise them. And we're beginning to see people thinking about those kinds of interventions that maybe we need to start restricting choice in some places. And at the very top of the ladder, there would be banning, you know, banning certain things. That might sound draconian, but we do do it in some places. We do it in schools. In schools, we have very strict rules. 
You can't sell confectionery in schools, or at least not state schools, although now they're all going to the academies that probably will go out the window. But in right now, you can't sell confectionery in schools. You can't sell sugary drinks in schools either. Um, and we have strict rules about you know, uh, how often you have fried food and so forth. There are clear standards which, for sure, <coughs> limit certain intent. It's fine in schools where we think we have a duty of care to children, but would it be reasonable to do that in other public institutions? You know, should we be doing that in prisons? Should we be doing that in hospitals? Should we be doing it in a whole raft of other places? What about um, publicly run leisure centres? How far do you, you know? How far is it reasonable to go in terms of restricting people's choice? And I think those are questions which um, partly come down to political philosophy. But actually, the truth is, politicians aren't going to do it unless there's a degree of public acceptability. And, and we, as a society, I think, have to really think through how far do we want to go in terms of public policy, and how much evidence is needed to justify that kind of policy action. And I'll finish with coming back to the challenges there are in doing science in this area, because we have got ourselves into a bit of a catch-22, where government rightly says we want to have evidence-based policies, but truth be told, researchers like me can't do research on the effect of some policies until the policy is introduced. It's, it, it's really, you know, it, it's really, really hard to do this. So our, our data on tax is all based on modelling studies, which have huge assumptions about what people will do if the price goes up. But we can't actually test that until somebody does it in practice. Now, fortunately, Mexico has done it, so we can draw a few lessons from there. But other policies are really hard to test until the policies are rolled out. But you can't, sometimes you can't introduce it until people feel there is the evidence that it will work, particularly for some of the more invasive policies. And so that, I think, is why nutrition is become such a very, very, very challenging area. Because the evidence is by no means complete, and it's by no means black and white. Um, testing dietary interventions is not like testing a drug where you can have an active one and can have a placebo. We can't do it covertly. People know what they're eating. People are aware of the policy environment. And so I think that what's happened is that science does not give such a clear-cut steer about what is, you know, the answer, if you like. And that leaves the field open to massive interpretation. And you can look at it through different lenses, you can look at it from different perspectives, and you'll end up reaching different conclusions. The final problem is that once you've reached a different conclusion, you can go to the press and say, I'm a nutritionist, and this is what I believe. Because nutrition is not a protected term. So you can't say you're a doctor or a dentist if you're not. You can all go home and put a plaque outside your door and say that you are a nutritionist. Because there is absolutely no protection, no legal protection over that term whatsoever. And so what we have is a whole raft of people, whether they're celebrities or whether they are other professionals in other fields, who 
um, have great professional credibility in what they do, but have really no track record, no research, no practice in nutrition, but who position themselves as being the voice of authority. And I think that that does, it's not that scientists always do it perfectly, but nonetheless, I think there is a real cause for concern when you know, the world and his wife offer up what appear to be evidence-based statements, which in fact come down to, this is what I do, and I think you should too. Um, and you know, I, I worry enormously about that, because I think people, nutrition is complicated enough without people being taken off on dead ends and tangents, you know, worrying that if they don't have hemp seed three times a day, you know, or they don't eat, you know, clover on a full moon, then somehow, you know, life's going to be dreadful. Life's too short to worry about some things. We need people to focus on the big issues, and the big issues in nutrition is that we eat, on average, too much saturated fat, too much sugar, too much salt, too little fruit veg, too little fiber. Now, that doesn't mean every single person in this room that applies to, that's the average. But we have to be very careful that we don't um, assume we're all better than average, which we're very good at doing. Uh, you know, 90, something like 90% of people believe they eat less fat than the average. Now, you don't need to be a statistician <laughs> to know that that is probably not the case. Um, so we're all a little bit optimistic about what we eat, so we need to be a little bit more realistic. And um, I think we need to um, recognize the importance of diet and also understand that it is pretty difficult these days to eat a healthy diet. It requires a lot of effort and uh, we need to find ways of making it easier for everyone to be able to enjoy a healthy diet. And that's ever. I've spoken much longer than I intended. So thank you for your tolerance and indulgence.
so-called recommended nutrient intake is four grams a day. So that's meant to be um, the amount we absolutely need with a safety margin built in to make sure. So what they would say is the reference nutrient intake that we should be at is four grams, and we're currently, on average, at eight and a half. Now, that to me means that most people are eating too much salt. Um, then maybe within that, of course, there's a distribution. There will be some individuals who are having, having relatively little salt. But at a population level, I think it's very, very clear we're eating too much salt. And what we know is that as salt intake increases, again, at a population level, blood pressure rises. Now, within that population, of course, there will be some people who are more or less sensitive to the effects of salt. If the average line is like that, as salt goes, there'll be some people who it goes up more steeply and some less. Yeah, but but my key point is there are actually some people who take too little salt. I became aware of this issue when a friend of mine, don't ask me to justify this logic, put herself on a salt detox diet. But the danger that applies to the whole population, it then came to my attention, there are actually a lot of people eating too little salt. You may be aware there's a long-term controversy even with animals, why do small mammals go long distances to eat salty mm-hmm. stuff, which is jolly dangerous, if quite a lot of salt isn't necessary? Well, um, I, okay, I have absolutely strictly been talking at a population level and the average for nations. I've not been talking about individuals. And individuals need you know, individual clinical, clinical advice, which I'm not, not trying to do. And I would continue to maintain that as a nation, on average, we're eating much too much salt. So that's that one. Sugary drinks, um, there, is a, there has been ongoing debate and controversy that artificial sweeteners uh, have adverse health effects. The European Food Safety Agency <coughs> reviewed this very comprehensively last, last year or the year before, found no evidence for that. Yes, I'm aware that's true of individual artificial sweeteners as chemicals, right. but the data does suggest that eating, drinking lots of fizzy drinks is okay. a well, limit of why. Okay, so um, what we know, two, two things, if you, take, if you take the observational data, you absolutely will find that people who, that there's no evidence that people who eat, drink diet drinks are somehow healthier as a result of it. That is almost certainly because lots of the people who drink diet drinks are people who are overweight and trying to manage their weight. And those help. If you, do, if you look at the trials, which give us much better evidence, and actually this is one area where you can do good trials, because you can do not quite placebo control, but you can give people diet drinks or not diet drinks, the trials are very, very clear. People who consume the diet drinks lose weight uh, over time. And that is associated with significant health improvement. Yeah, they so, lose weight, but don't necessarily become healthy. Yeah, they do. No, they do. Absolutely. There's a completely linear relationship between um, weight at a population level and blood pressure, um, uh, uh, cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and uh, insulin resistance. So, yeah, I think that, I think that is... Yes, in, in isolation, certainly, yeah. losing weight is good. Yeah. But, but, anyway, so, I, what I would say, well, my final thing about diet drinks is, I think they're a harm reduction strategy. They're effectively like e-cigarettes. I would never suggest you start take, using e-cigarettes, but if you smoke, they're a really good alternative. If you drink a lot of sugary drinks, diet drinks are a really good alternative. Frankly, you're better off with water. Um, but for some people, that's going to be too big a behaviour change. 
So I think they're a harm reduction strategy. They are not the best solution. And they certainly rot your teeth. You know, the, 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 the acidity is just as bad as, as full sugar full sugar varieties. Yeah. Uh, well, I was wondering, just leading to the previous question, if uh, there's any evidences about the cancerous effects, for example, of uh, aspartame. No. European Food Safety Agency reports on nine. Not an yeah. expert, so yeah. I'm just not really supported by your question. And moreover, just second one, uh, if you should just suggest any kind of a, let's say, diet according to skin nutrients, like protein, uh, carbohydrates, yeah. or whatever, how would you run them? Just, we were just talking about how bad I'll just saturate the fat. But if I'm just overweight or obese, should I also re reduce or also just my fat? Um, if you're not overweight, there's no reason to cut down on total fat. The concern about total fat is purely about calories. So if you're not overweight, I wouldn't worry about total fat. I would still worry about saturated fat. Um, so if you're not overweight, yeah, olive oil's fine. If you're overweight, olive oil has got just as many calories as butter or lard. So, you know, so um, uh, I think managing your weight is the most important thing. And that means being careful about total fat and careful about total sugar because of the calories. Um, and then beyond that, there is good evidence that reducing saturated fat will lower your risk and, and probably uh, and reducing salt. Sugar is really debatable. Sugar for sure contributes to calories, for sure contributes to obesity. Whether it has an independent effect on diabetes is really, you know, it's really marginal. We're not, we're not clear on that one way or the other. But for sure, too much sugar increases your risk of weight gain. Increasing your risk of weight gain increases your risk of diabetes. So in a way, the answer is eat less sugar. <laughs> So yeah. only 20% of people, so, so we have this five a day target. Now, is five a day a miraculous number? No, it's not. We know that as you increase fruit and veg, if you take the observational studies, more fruit and veg you eat, the healthier you are. Why do we pick five? Well, because people like a number to aim for. And five is actually, only 20% of people in the UK achieve five a day. Now, that makes it feel kind of a reasonable target because it's not completely impossible. It doesn't make it some extreme sport that, you know, only the odd person can manage. It's kind of doable, but most of us are not there. So that's why we set it at five a day. So there is really good evidence that even in the UK, people would benefit from eating more fruit and vegetables across a whole raft of diseases, partly because of the beneficial effects of the micronutrients and the fibre, but also because it will probably squeeze out other things. That's not guaranteed, and I have to say the intervention studies where people have been encouraged to eat more fruit and veg have shown very few positive effects, uh, because what happens is people eat the fruit and veg as well as all the other stuff they were having, and if you add it on rather than substitute, it's, it's, it's less beneficial. Um, but yeah, fruit and veg is important. The strategies are a little bit different. Um, so. 
I think a lot of fruit and veg, some of it comes down to cooking skills, particularly for veg. We've seen an increase in fruit intake over the last few years. We've seen hardly any change in vegetables. Um, and that's probably because of the decline of meal eating, more casual dining, you're less likely to have vegetables. Um, uh, but we do need different strategies. I mean, the supermarkets have actually tried quite hard to boost fruit and veg. But it's all very well having two-for-one offers, but very few people manage to eat two pineapples in the week. And so what they do is to increase food waste. So real, real challenges about how do you increase fruit and vegetables. And the reality is if you don't start off your fiber day in the morning, you know, it's kind of hard to catch it up later in the day. So you've got to get people to start embedding it into their life. So then you come down to the behavioural strategies, which is about planning and structure and routine and developing healthy habits, and that's another whole, you know, whole lecture. Um, yes, I used to eat what I thought was a healthy diet, mainly in Mediterranean, lots of garlic, um, mushrooms, sweet potatoes, kale, all these things. All sounds good. I'll consider that. But this is something you haven't touched on. I have an IBS problem, mm. and you haven't touched on the gut point. And just straight after Christmas, I started um, a FODMAP diet under yep. the, um, the NHS dietitian. Yep. And first of all, I could admit I had to give up caffeine, gluten, lactose, any onion, family, sticky food, everything mm -hmm. you could think of. But there were all these things that didn't make sense at all. No kale, no avocado, no asparagus, yep. no apples, no pears, no, most no nuts. Yep. I mean, all the things I've been told good for me, sweet potato, and that's what. So it was really a meat and potatoes, fish, yep. eggs, yep. cheese, diet. And it didn't matter how much sugar you had. That wasn't one of the things. And I've discovered as a result of it that I can, I'm only reintroducing foods now, mm. it's a long process, it takes about six months, that I can never eat garlic and onions mm. again, which But really you felt you had felt much better on the diet. When I haven't been eating, okay. you know, I'm reintroducing, okay. so the cauliflower's so, no good, but I think when you say about feeling healthy, you haven't Sure. Okay. Sure. Look, I could be here. I'd keep you here for a month or a year if I was trying to do all of that. If I was trying to do all of these things. So what I've talked about is the big headline public health issues. There is a whole raft of clinical nutrition, which is about helping individuals to manage their diet. So we, of course, know that what you eat impacts on your gut physiology and impacts on a whole range of, of gut conditions. And so there's a whole raft of nutrition which is about um, helping people to manage those individual conditions. Interestingly, IBS, I mean the FODMAP diet in trials has shown typically to benefit people quite significantly. But what we also know is that IBS is one of these things which does prompt idiosyncratic reactions. So for some people, particular foods cause particular problems. And one can only get at that by by, by testing in an individual. Um, and, and that's the whole process of this food, food reintroduction. So I completely understand what you're talking about. And, and I guess just important, sir, I really wasn't trying to address individual clinical needs. It just doesn't tonight. seem when you Well, what you're trying to do is you're trying to solve it seem an acute. Yeah. 
for so to, to, what's happening is you are trying to deal with an acute clinical condition and I've been talking about long-term chronic disease for the population and those two don't necessarily match up if you are trying to manage a specific condition you know, it's like if, if you're lactose intolerant of course you should have dairy absolutely clear would I say that to most people? No, because we know there are good reasons to include dairy in your diet. So I think when you come down to individuals, you've got to be able to um, deal with their particular circumstances. Anyway, I like the like garlic and onions. This isn't good for well, well, it is. It is. is. But you have to learn a new way of cooking. When you go to someone's house, yeah. nobody yeah. cooks anything like without garlic. You never have yeah. soup again, yeah, yeah. pasta, anything with stock. It's, it's very tough. It's really tough. <laughs> it's really tough. Uh, can I take you to the other end of the scale of how food is produced? Yeah. And uh, the fact that um, as a world and as in Europe we're losing soil at a far greater rate than uh, soil is being reproduced. Yep. And where do you, have, have you, can you comment on that problem and how food and the health benefits of how food is produced? Well, a little bit. We're getting beyond to the edges of my expertise. But firstly, in Oxford, there's a fantastic group called uh, Future Food um, Network, which is a group of university researchers who really cover the whole food system. So it goes right from um, crop sciences, plant sciences, um, through environmental issues, on, on to health. So there's a website, the Oxford Martin Future of Food, so you might want to look at that and have some nice lectures and things. Um, so I absolutely believe that we need to transform the food system. And we can't do that just for health. We've got to have a kind of integrated system because agriculture, food production, is a massive contributor to environmental damage at the moment. Uh, if we want to feed you know, 9 billion people by 2050, we're going to have to inc increase food production. How are we going to do that? Well, you could chuck a whole load of nitrate fertilisers on. Uh, that's not the right answer. That's, you know, that's not the right answer. Um, so... You know, if we want to feed more people, if we want more people to eat like we do, to have the opportunity to eat lots of meat, we're going to have to chop down lots of trees. Ah, oh, that's not the answer either. You know, so we've got to develop an integrated food plan for the food system. And I actually, I certainly don't know what the answer is exactly. I'm not sure many, you know, maybe anybody does. But I think we've got to look very hard at land use and how we use land, and how we protect the soil, and how we fertilise the soil. So I would never, either on health or in fact on environmental grounds, say we shouldn't eat meat, because actually there are some areas of the country where it makes absolute sense to have animals, absolute sense, and if you're going to have animals, then actually it doesn't make any sense not to you know, use, use the meat. Um, but probably... There is quite a lot of area in this country where we should not be using the land for animals. We should be using it, you know, in other ways. So I don't exactly know the answer, as I say, kind of slightly outside my area, but you are completely right. We have got to start with primary production, and we've got to get the primary production system sustainable and producing the kinds of crops which are, the kinds of foods which are going to give us a healthy diet. And that in the UK means less meat, 
and more plants, more legumes. Yeah, my question is about uh, a lot of the public health discourse focusing on a uh, calorie model or energy balance model. Yeah. Uh, calories in and calories yeah. out. Uh, but maybe a growing body of literature that suggests, you know, simply a, a calorie is not a calorie. And, Great. Um, you know, to, to what extent yeah. do you. Do okay, so a calorie is a calorie. A calorie is a unit of energy. To say a calorie is not a calorie is like saying a centimeter is not a centimeter or a kilogram is not a kilogram. Of course it is. It is a unit of energy. It's a scientific measure. Of course, a calorie is a calorie. However, however, so. If you, if you burn foods in a bomb calorimeter, you measure calories, that's what it is. Where they differ is not in their energy content of food, calories are calorie, but in their post-ingestive effects. Now, what I mean by that is that if you have, let's say, 300 calories of a sugary drink versus 300 calories of steak, you have the same calories. But how hungry you will feel later is very, very different. And so the, if, if I was to give you a plate of sandwiches later, I would confidently expect you would eat more sandwiches after the sugary drink than you would after the steak. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with that. I mm. guess my, my question that I was getting to was more from a policy aspect. To what extent do you think focusing on calories uh, as a construct on labeling and things like that distracts from so my own view is that the biggest public health challenge we face is people managing their weight, and that is about calories. So in all of our trials, where we get people to reduce the amount of saturated fat or sugar or increase fiber or eat more fruit and veg, we get, we get health improvements, absolutely for sure. They're pretty modest, very small. If we get people to lose two kilos, three kilos of weight, choo, you get really measurable improvements. So I think all the modeling, our trials, but other modeling shows us that the most important thing we could do would be to control the population's weight. That's because if people eat fewer calories, they eat less saturated fat, less sugar, less salt. So you, you get a kind of double, a double win. Now clearly though, what we can't do is to say, um, okay, you need to eat fewer calories, but it's fine if you get those calories from, you know, Mars bars. Um, but, but nobody is saying that. So within your calorie allowance, of course it makes sense to have less saturated fat, less sugar, less salt, more fiber. But certainly my reading of the literature and the modeling, I think, is quite clear that weight at a public health level is the most important issue. But that is not to say that the nature of those calories doesn't matter. So even if you are managing your weight really, really well, you're perfectly healthy weight, you should be concerned about how much saturated fat, how much sugar, and how much salt you're consuming. Does that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Good. Let me come over this side. Yeah. Um, you've talked about uh, food that you would call healthy food. Mm. Um, in your opinion, is there any evidence I, mean, I get that things like vitamins and minerals are needed. Is there any evidence for food being healthy, for beyond it meaning you're not eating unhealthy food? Uh, yeah, so fibre fiber has benefits, for sure. You know, none of us are eating enough, 
So even if you look at the old recommendations, we were probably about 20% under them. And actually, the committee has just increased the requirements, so we're now massively under eating on fibre. So um, I think there are some positive, there are some positive health benefits. But is it beyond you're not eating bad food? Um, That's the question. This is this is the difficulty in separating these two things out because. You know, in all our dietary intervention studies, when you ask people not to do something, they replace it with something, you know, they replace it with but something else. do you think else. there is any evidence at all? That some foods are actively bad. That some foods are actively good, beyond oh, actively vitamins good. and minerals. Well, beyond food Other than they stop you eating the bad food. Oh, I think they are actively good beyond that. So I think over... But is you know, there any evidence? <sighs> tricky. Very tricky. So some very particular foods, if you add them in, it's hard just to add them in because then you increase calorie intake. So you always yeah. have, you know, you so once you increase people, calorie intake, you're stuffed really. So you need to substitute it for something yeah. else. You were saying people eating more fruits and veg sometimes they get much yeah, better fit because they're eating the best. They don't. Uh, that's in trials. But yeah. people who naturally choose to eat more fruit and veg for sure are healthier. It's just that if I impose it on you, it doesn't necessarily, in and of itself, stop you eating the other stuff. It sounds like you're saying there isn't any evidence that it's actually helpful. I actually don't think there is. I don't, I'm just struggling. That's an interesting question. One of, one of the things we're trying to do is to move away from these analyses of individual nutrients and to look at what we call dietary patterns. So, you know, we all eat, we all eat lots of stuff. You know, we all eat some fruit and veg. We all eat, well, not all, but most people eat some meat, some dairy some biscuits, some alcohol. We all, you know, it's a question of, are you over or under indexing on those things? So we started this approach which looks at these dietary patterns and tries to judge overall. So it's like looking, you know, when I go to the supermarket, I sometimes look in people's baskets and I kind of, you know, I've kind of mentally categorised them. And it's trying to find a more robust statistical way of doing that, you know, that says, okay, let's take everything you eat in the week and let's see if that's kind of generally closer to dietary recommendations or, or a bit further away. And when we do that, we get much clearer associations with health outcomes. So we find people who have this kind of basket do really well. It doesn't mean there's no chocolate in there, but it means there's much less than there is in somebody else's, and it means there's much more fruit and veg than there is in somebody else's. So I think we've got to... Um, uh, academically, statistically, find a way of trying to reflect the entirety of the diet in in our analyses, and also then reflect that in the way we talk to people about recommendations. Um, but it, it's you know the challenge I'm always in is either I sound like the flipping wicked witch of the West and saying that shall never eat, you know X, Y, and Z in which just sounds unachievable and unrealistic. Or I start saying, well, of course, it's all about balance and moderation, and at which point it sounds so flipping wishy-washy, nobody listens. And it's very, very hard to find that, that middle ground. And it's very, very hard to speak to the nation, because you're talking on average. And none of you in this room are average. I'm not average either. None of us are average. And so you're never quite hitting the mark for individuals. 
And because nutrition is so personal, people <coughs> don't feel like I'm talking to to them. Uh, it, it's it's feeling difficult. And I welcome any suggestions about how we better connect with people when you know we can't sit down and talk to people individually about your circumstance, your condition, your priorities, what you're eating now, what you might do, your budget, your constraint, your cooking skills. I think we should improve the traffic light system. So, traffic, oh God, don't get myself on traffic lights. So, traffic I would so, love to know that food's got too much saturated fat in things yeah. like that. We can't without getting your glasses out. So, the problem with labeling, well, no, there's lots of problems with labeling. So, we all believe good labeling would be helpful. If you don't want to look at it, fine, you don't have to. But for those of us who'd like to look at it, we'd like it good, consistent, and simple. But that is harder than you think. But let's imagine that you and I sit down and we work out the brilliant system that's going to be clear, simple, concise, and, and accessible. Unfortunately, uh, uh, this is not meant to be a political comment about the EU referendum, but unfortunately, we can't make those rules in the UK. So this is what's called an EU competency. So the EU lays down the rules on labelling. So we are not allowed, legally, to make rules on labelling here. So even if we came up with a great system, we can't impose it. So the system we have at the moment, which is traffic lights, which is not perfect, but most of the research says is not bad and better than most of the others. We are currently being sued by the Italians, the Greeks, and the Spanish um, as apparently it being a barrier to free trade entirely understood why that is, but anyway, we are now at the you know European Court of Labelling or whatever it's called. Um, so I was copied, I, I used to work, do a bit of work with DH, and I was copied into a letter a while back to the uh, uh, Foreign Office Minister, basically saying, you know, dear Minister, here's the issue, and next time you're in Brussels, please can you raise this? You know, I kind of just don't really feel it's that likely that nutritional labelling is top of the list of concerns we have with the EU, but it is, it's probably sort of The big issue is, is over sugars. Sugars are a huge nightmare for labelling, because the label tells you total sugars. It tells you, in a product, um, if you were to uh, put it through your, your um, machine in the lab, because how much sugar is in there. That includes the lactose from dairy, it includes the natural sugar in fruit, and it includes the sugar that the manufacturers tipped in in the sugar bowl. What most customers want to know is what the added sugar is, not the natural innate sugar. They want to know what the added sugar is. You can't tell that from the label, which is incredibly frustrating. So you know, if you buy yogurt, fruit yogurt, there's some fruit, there's some sugar from the fruit, there's some sugar from the milk, and there's some that's been added, and you can't tell the difference. Or muesli, you know, no added sugar muesli has a lot of sugar in it from the dry fruit. But does your body care where the sugar is come from? Sorry? Does, does your body care where the sugar is come from? Well, metabolically, no, it doesn't. What is in your stomach, your body has not a flipping clue where it's come from. But behaviorally, it does matter because the foods which have, if you like, natural sugars, the sugar tends to come in, in in a matrix with fiber and other things. So the amount of time and effort it takes you to eat and process 
50 grams of sugar from an orange is considerably more than 50 grams from um, a fruit yogurt. So it behaviorally probably does matter, but you're absolutely right, metabolically it, it, metabolically it doesn't. And, and that's the rationale for labeling it as total sugars. But probably in terms of changing people's behavior, it's not that helpful. Oh, lady at the front of the bar. Hello there. Um, you talked about a number of interesting ways you can address dietary issues in the UK. I, I wonder what role wealth inequality plays in this debate and the fact that sort of some of the issues that you, you highlighted adversely affect people on lower incomes. Um, mm -hmm. You're restricting certain foods and you're making them more, effective, more expensive. How does that affect people with less money? So, so there is, a pop, there is a, an inequality issue in this, but absolutely for sure. Um, but, but it's, it's, in some ways, it's not as great as you expect. I think it's very easy for middle-class audiences to think, oh, which are fine, it's those people over there. And actually, most of us are not doing that fine. So I think it is much more of a whole population problem than we often, often imagine. So if you look at saturated fat, for example, pretty well across the social spectrum, we're eating too much saturated fat. The sources of that are very different. So if you look in high SES groups, professional groups, the excess comes from things like cheese. If you look in lower social uh, class groups, the excess comes from biscuits and pastries and things. But the net effect is we're all eating well, a lot of saturated fat. The places where you see big differences by um, income or education or social class or how come in fruit and veg, which is socially patterned, and sugary drinks, which are also socially patterned. Those are the two really striking ones, I think. So people often say this is an issue of price. To some extent it is. Fruit and veg are still relatively expensive. Um, but it's, it's, not wholly, it's not wholly priced, partly because at, for the most part, there are a few people who are in serious food poverty. Absolutely, I don't want to, um, in a way, distract from that. But the bulk of people, price is not the limiting factor, actually. It appears to be about experience and accessibility and availability and life choices. So there are some parts of the country where if you walk down the high street, actually you do not have any health choices. You've got, you know, a chicken shack, a kebab van, a da 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 There are no good choices down that road. And that is going to make it incredibly hard for you to eat well. In Oxford, there's tons of availability, there's food everywhere. Actually, there's a pretty wide range of, of choice. So I think the, the social inequalities stem come, come in very complex ways. They're about the environment you live in, they're about your um, experience of food and your cooking skills and all of those kinds of factors. Um, and they're not easily disentangled in reality. Um, there's also an issue of how, you know, so, so the, the issue about price kind of also hinges on the way you cook. So it is perfectly possible to eat very, very cheaply and very, very healthily. But it requires a lot of cooking skills to do that. And it requires the ability to be able to cook in bulk and store it in your freezer. And 
a whole raft of other social issues which sometimes are, are not possible. You know, if you can't shop in bulk, food's more expensive. And you, maybe you can't shop in bulk because you haven't got a car or you haven't got storage facilities or, or you can't afford that initial outlay which in the end makes it cheaper, but actually this week you can't afford it. So there are, so although in theory healthy eating does not have to be more expensive, in practice it ends up being more expensive in terms of both time and actual and actual outlay and skills. So it, it's 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 just a hugely complicated issue. And I think that that does mean we need to be very, very sensitive and try to develop interventions which are going to have a real benefit to people who, who need it most and who are the most vulnerable. But I think we also should not turn a blind eye to the fact that this is not just about pulling people out of poverty. It is about availability, accessibility, experience. The whole, there's a whole raft of other factors. Which, which are making the difference. It, it is not just about price of food. No, it's not. Is it when you look at somewhere like Tesco's, which must have uh, between, I'd say, 15 20% of its food aisles, or its aisles in there, devoted to alcohol, crisps, and biscuits. Yep. And they're in the business of selling stuff to us. They're not interested really how healthy it is, only on a marginal basis. Yeah, if, if we say we're, we're healthier, you know, we, we're providing healthy meals, then, then people will shop. But you're right, it's the time aspect. It's education. What you see in Tesco um, today is basically what you bought last week. Yeah. yeah. They are incredibly sensitive to customer demand. Um, now, of course, they shape it a little bit in the nature of promotions, the way they organize the store, all that, all that kind of thing. But um, yeah, they're responding yeah. heavily, and, and they don't care really what they sell. They've got very healthy food there. Yeah, they've yeah. got very unhealthy. We've got the choice. The um, choice but there. the question is, should there be a responsibility on them to be making greater efforts, not to? Um, so at the moment, if you go into if you go into a supermarket with the best of intentions, with a list, you end up actually often coming out with things you didn't quite intend to buy. And mostly those are things which are high in fat, sugar, and salt. And the question is, could we have a system where those retail outlets, actually, the things you bought impulsively and not without engaging a whole load of brain power, could we get to a point where those were the healthier things? Because we, we, we all like to think we're rational, intelligent, educated, we make very, you know, very good, rational choices. The truth is, most of what we buy, most of what we eat, is pretty impulsive, well, not impulsive, but automatic, just whatever's around, we just do it. And if the supermarket was organised differently, maybe we would just automatically do different things. But the sugary drinks tax, which we'll have yep. for a year, two years, two years. Two years. And the, the sugary drinks manufacturers were shouting because they weren't consulted, they weren't given time, they didn't know it was going to happen. No, because they've been lobbying for so long mm. not to have it happen. Yeah, so... There must, be, there must be a solution to that. It's cheap. Obviously sugar is cheap. Mm. Thank you. 
the, um, the sugary drinks. So, what public health groups have generally been saying is we need a sales tax on sugary drinks so that there would be a clear differential at point of choice. This would cost 10, 20, whatever it is, can be more than that. That isn't what George Osborne's done. He's put a levy on the companies in relation to the proportion of their sales, which is sugary drinks. And so we don't yet know how companies will play that game. So what he said is, this is an incentive to reformulation, because if the company uh, reduces the sugar content of its products, it will have a lower tax regimen. If they have small portions, they'll have a lower tax. So that's a nice theory, but, but it may, we, we don't know what, how the companies will play it. So what they might do is say, oh, stop this, we'll just take the tax and carry on as we are. They could do that. What they would then do, of course, is just pass that cost on to customers. And so we could see the price of all, should all drinks go up, diet and not diet. What public health campaigners wanted is that clear differential, which said these drinks have to cost more than, more than those drinks. So that's what. So, so we just do not know how they're going to respond. Um, and if you're a beet farmer out in Cambridgeshire, you're, you're stuck because you've lost that. Maybe we should be. Well, I don't think it'll be that dramatic. <laughs> Um, no, I think, no, right, yeah, 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 I don't think it'll be very dramatic. No. You know, it, so in Mexico, a 10% tax uh, reduced uh, sugary drink sales by between six and 12%, and that was that was socially patterned. So, um, it, yeah, it's not gonna it's not gonna wipe them out of business for sure. Um, what nudge or change would you like to see happen next? Well, I think there is no one thing. So when people say, no, what's the one thing we should do? I always say, actually, the trouble is there isn't one thing. There's no brilliant strategy which we just haven't done yet. They're all quite modest. They all, so a sugary drinks tax is a, is a helpful step, but it, it's only going to affect drinks, and they're quite a small bit. So people only get 2% of their energy from drinks. So even if you wipe them off the face of the earth, let's not pretend that's going to you know, completely transform the problem. So I think there's a whole raft of things. The bit that concerns me most, I think, is probably the marketing of food. So there's a massive skew over the way food is, is marketed. So all the foods that we would like people to eat less of are the ones that have the biggest marketing spend and investment behind them. And I think we need to find some way of redressing that balance, which can't be we'll have a bit more government advertising of fruit and veg, because we're never, ever, you know, we've, we've got to actively, I think, reduce the, the active promotion of the less healthy products. It's not that you can't buy them, but we shouldn't be actively encouraging people to consume these. And I suspect that that may well be quite important. The other thing that I think is really important, and we haven't touched on this evening, but I guess I, I feel like I need to say before I go, is, is most of what we talk about is preventing. It's stopping us all gaining, you know, on average we gain half a kilo a year. So it's kind of about stopping that. But the truth is two-thirds of adults are overweight, and they need help to lose weight. They need support to do that. And we are rubbish at providing that support. Absolutely rubbish. If you're, if you're a smoker and you go and see your doctor, your doctor will offer you help to stop smoking. They do that because they know it's really bad for your health, and they do it because they're incentivized to do it. Part of their is doing. So the whole we, we've set up the system to make sure people who smoke get help to stop smoking. 
don't really like that people are overweight. If you're overweight, you can be pretty confident your doctor's not going to mention it. Now that seems to me not a sensible system, and we do know that providing support can help people lose weight, and we're not doing that. So I think that we not only need to be thinking about how do we prevent obesity, which of course is important, but we've also got to be thinking about how do we support people who are overweight to manage their weight. And you know the 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 um, tabloid press approach is to say, ah, hell in a handcart, shocking, awful. You know, how can you possibly do this? All the research tells us that that does not help people to lose weight. What helps people to lose weight is positive support, and we are unbelievably bad at delivering that. And I think we've got to do more of that sort of thing. So right now, I think this probably the single most important thing we could do would be to upscale the opportunities for people who are overweight and who want help to be able to access that through the NHS. I think that actually probably would be the single most effective thing. Um, but of course, we also need to, if you like, turn off the tap. You know, help people to stop gaining, gaining weight in the future. Um, but I, I do worry slightly that we are not providing the support to people who are overweight that we could and should, in my view, should be providing. Is that, is that waiting on the fact that I actually work in a stop smoking service? Is that waiting for funding to shift or is there enough funding there or is it just that... Well, of course, there's not enough funding there. There is no money. Um, so we would have to take money from somewhere else. And I would argue that if you want to meet Simon Stevens' vision of a preventative NHS, we've got to invest in preventative services. And treating obesity through behavioural interventions is about preventing chronic disease. And I think we haven't quite you know, clocked that. There's still an awful societal perspective that treating obesity, people should just, you know, pull themselves together. Or, you know, I mean, there's, there's such appalling prejudice um, around, uh, around uh, for people who are overweight, which, which really upsets me. But um, until we get over that, we will never get people thinking that with limited NHS budgets, we should spend that on helping people to lose weight. Even though all of the cost-effectiveness analysis tells us that that actually would be phenomenally good value for money. Because you don't need to lose very much. You know, losing just four kilos reduces your risk of developing diabetes by nearly 50%. Diabetes is a very expensive condition. Um, you know, it, it's an... Economically, it is a no-brainer that we should be deploying those kinds of services, but there is insufficient public, it's not even demand, but public acceptability for local authorities to commission those services. And because now, in the new structures, those are about local authority decisions, they're not NHS decisions, you are up again, should we treat obesity or should we empty the bins? Emptying the bins and picking up the dog food will always win. You have to be on the parish council to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dog food's a big issue. Street lighting, dog food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think time to stop. I'm going to be around a little bit longer. I'm very happy to chat informally. I work in primary care. We've got a, a what we call our participant panel. 
group of people we kind of talk to by email, who give us feedback on research ideas, who join groups for various things. If you'd like to be involved in that, email me. Um, it doesn't commit you to anything. We'll send you a bit of a newsletter every now and then about what we're doing, and we'll email you and say, would you like to help with this? You can ignore the email if you wish. You can say no, or you can help. Um, very, very low-key, but I'm um, very happy to hear from anybody who wants to be involved in that sort of stuff. Um, and um, you thank you for that. You can, you'll find me. If you've got Susan Jo you'll find me all too easily. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association Oxfordshire Branch.